1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW for void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Not only does Himalaya have tons of cool features like curated podcast playlists and collections, along with personalized recommendations, But my brand new, members only version of this show called Morbidology Plus is only available on the Himalaya app. When you become a member of Morbidology Plus, you'll get all ad free, exclusive episodes where I'll be covering topics we normally leave out on my free episodes. You'll even get these episodes a full four days early. And the best part is Morbidology Plus is available for just $4.99 a month. For all those reasons, Himalaya is the only listening app that I use and I'm sure it'll be the only one for you too. So download Himalaya and go join Morbidology Plus today. Welcome to Morbidology, the podcast. I'm your host, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases, Uncovered. Colchester is a town in the county of Essex. It is known for being a market town and holds one of the most popular markets in North Essex. In 2014, the small town was rocked by two extremely brutal murders and the investigation to catch the killer was one of the biggest carried out by Essex police. The town was held on edge as the spectre of a serial killer loomed over. Sales of stab-proof vests rocketed while people refused to go anywhere alone out of fear that they would become the next target. The community and media alike had conjured up the killer as a Yorkshire Ripper or Ted Bundy type, but nobody could have predicted who the killer would turn out to be. As the early morning mist was just starting to dissipate in Colchester, Essex, on the 29th of March 2014, At around 5.45am, a a local man stumbled across a graphic scene in Castle Park. He found a man who was unconscious on the path and surrounded in a puddle of his own blood. He had serious injuries to his upper body, caused with a sharp instrument. The first officer on the scene was P.C. Benjamin Savory. I saw something lying on the ground. I sprinted towards the object on the floor, which was clearly a body covered in blood. The body was lying face up, at this point, I donned my blue gloves. I quickly checked on the state of the body, which had a large amount of wounds and a huge amount of blood underneath him. There were lacerations to his head, hands and face, and a huge amount of blood congealed around his left eye. I couldn't see the eye at all, he recalled. The man was pronounced dead at the scene. He was identified as 33-year-old James Atfield of East Bay, Colchester. James was a father of five, known locally as Jim. Years earlier, Jim had been in a bad car accident and suffered a brain injury that weakened the left side of his body and affected his reasoning and his speech.
3: Um, well, I had a coma and I was in a right way, apparently. My mind works all right, but my body sometimes does me down. Some people will say you've got a disability and...
2: Jim would typically be found in any of the local bars, taking part in karaoke and would always be sporting a massive smile. Due to his brain injury, Jim was vulnerable and didn't have many friends his own age. He preferred to go for a drink and watch the football in an old man pub instead of going out clubbing. He didn't like to go to crowded places either because he was afraid he could get into trouble that could lead to a further injury. Next, we will hear from June Lee Finch, Jim's mother.
4: He was just our little Jim, very well-mannered, always very helpful. He'd help everybody and anybody. And he sort of went from gentle Jim to gentleman Jim. He was very weak down one side, it seemed to affect his balance. Um, His speech was a little bit slurred and a little bit slow. And he just wanted to do things that he used to do, but he couldn't. Yeah, I think it probably did affect him, you know, with, with talking to people generally. He tended to talk to older people more, because I think possibly he thought they'd be a little bit more understanding, maybe. When I went to identify Jim, that was probably the hardest thing. Because um, I suppose part of you thinking it's been a mistake, it's, it's not him, it can't be. I can't understand it. I can't say why anybody would attack somebody like Jim because he wouldn't have provoked anything or done anything to upset anybody, not on purpose. And I try not to think too much about what actually happened because it, you know that would be unbearable.
2: Jim was well-known around the town and was always commended on his impeccable manners. In recent months, he had purchased a keyboard and guitar and was teaching himself to play them. He was always challenging himself and was proactive in his own recovery. Next, we will hear from Jim's sister, Joe Robinson.
5: Smashing smile, cheeky grin, just all round funny guy, really. He always had a little joke on hand and things like that. He loved his karaoke. He used to get on his chopper bike and he used to race round with me on the back and stick his bum out so I'd fall off. So yeah, it was good childhood. Jim was actually still alive when he was found. He must have laid there in pain and just bleeding to death. It's the sort of thing you really don't want to imagine, let alone live.
2: Jim lived in sheltered accommodation and had not been in contact with his children since his brain injury. The accident had wiped away a lot of Jim's memory, and he thought that his children were his siblings. However, Jim had just recently started to remember his children, and just days before he was murdered, he and his ex-girlfriend, Cheryl Dawn, had been making arrangements for a reunion. Quote, It was for the best I kept the children away until Jim's memory came back. It was like they'd lost him twice. Once from his brain injury, and then the second time, which will be forever, she said. A 1.5-mile area between Wakefield Close and Riverside Place surrounding the crime scene was cordoned off. Detectives from both the Kent and Essex Serious Crimes Dictoriate were assigned to work the case. They began by piecing together the final hours of Jim's life. They soon announced that they were looking for information about a man who was seen walking along East Hill at around 5.30am on the Saturday that Jim was murdered. Quote, Castle Park is used at all hours of the day and night, and I'm sure someone will have seen something. I really need to hear from anybody who saw anybody acting suspiciously in the park, anyone who heard anything untoward, or anyone who thinks that they may know who is responsible for Jim's death. Equally, I would like to invite the person or people responsible to hand themselves in, announced Senior Investigating Officer, DCI, Simon Weirth. As the investigation was underway, Superintendent Steve Ditchburn organised an increased police presence in the town centre to reassure the public. The day after the murder, tributes were paid to Jim, who was described as shy and polite. Quote, Jim was never the type of person to look for a fight and would always back down or walk away, said his mother, Julie, who was joined by her partner, Finn Sellers, and two daughters, 18-year-old Ashley and 29-year-old Joanne she fondly recalled some memories that brought a smile to her face. One in particular was when on a family boating holiday, he sunk into some mud and had to be hosed on before he could get back on board. At the time of Jim's murder, he had been in the process of rebuilding his life. Jim's autopsy, which took eight and a half hours due to the numerous injuries, indicated that Jim had fought for his life during the savage attack. He had been stabbed 102 times and had suffered knife wounds to his head, face and torso. He also had numerous defensive wounds to his arms and hands, inflicted as Jim had desperately attempted to shield himself from the killer. Jim had even been stabbed in the eyes. Quote, this is one of the most brutal murders I have ever dealt with, said DCI Simon Wareth. Next, we will hear from Will Lodge, a former journalist at East Anglian Daily Times.
1: Some of these stab wounds were really vicious, including stab wounds to the eye. And that was one of the real standout details.
2: CCTV from the local area showed that Jim had left the River Lodge pub in Middleborough at 10.09pm the night before he died. He had left behind three quarters of a pint, which was completely out of character. However, investigators were still unsure as to where Jim went or what he did over the next seven hours before he was found in the park. The investigation was fast-moving and police found several weapons in the lake and river Colne. However, it was determined that none of the weapons were the murder weapon. The murder struck fear into the hearts of the locals. Random murders were pretty rare in this area.
5: The whole community were just scared to go out because nobody knew who the person was that done it. I was walking round in Colchester with my sister one evening and I remember saying to her, We could have walked past the person that has done this.
2: Several days later, it was announced that a 38-year-old man from Colchester was being held in connection with the murder of Jim. The community let out a collective sigh of relief and could sleep soundly, knowing that the brutal killer had finally been caught. However, the respite didn't last long. Just the following day, it was announced that the suspect had been released without charge. Police spent the next night at Castle Park from 9pm until dawn talking to people who may have been at the park on the night that Jim was murdered. After interviewing around 50 people, police announced that they were now wanting to track down a man and a woman who had been sitting on a bench in the park at around 11.30pm on the night that Jim died. The only description they had of the couple was that they were both white and may have been smoking. They were sitting at opposite sides of the bench and it was unclear as to whether they knew each other or not. There had been a couple arguing in the park earlier on in the evening, and it was theorised that this was the same couple. The couple on the bench were captured by CCTV, and around 10 metres away, there was a man sitting on the grass. Police believed that this was Jim, and if so, these were his last known movements. Quote, we also want to hear from anybody who may know someone who returned home early last Sunday morning with blood-covered clothing which they may have disposed of quickly, said DCI Simon Werrell. According to Detective Werrell, forensic investigation was still underway and police planned to search the local tip where bins from the park had been emptied. Police soon announced that they were searching for three people and publicly released e of these three. The first person was a man who was spotted in the area of Ryegate Road at around 11pm on the night that Jim was killed. He was described as white in his late 20s or early 30s with dark hair and stubble. He was wearing jeans and a red checkered shirt. The second person was a male who was seen in the pillbox walk area at around 6.05 am on the morning that Jim was discovered. He was white, around 40 to 45 years old and around 6 feet tall and of large build. He was wearing a knee-length grey coat, which was in bad condition, and black jeans. He was carrying a blue plastic bag and a tin of beer. The third person was also a man and he was sighted on a pathway between Northgate Street and Lincoln Way near the Roman Wall at around 10.25pm. He was white, aged in his late 40s with short balding hair. He stood at around 6 feet 2 inches tall and was wearing a knee-length beige coat and had the collar pulled up around his mouth. While these three men weren't considered suspects in the murder, they were persons of interest that could potentially assist in the investigation. On the 11th of April, a 27-year-old woman was arrested in connection with Jim's murder. Police refused to release any more information about the woman, but she was soon enough bailed on the 24th of April. Despite the public fears to go out alone at night with a killer lurking in the midst, Essex City Council decided that in a bid to save money, they would turn off a majority of the street lights. Now, according to Essex Police, there was no evidence of an increase in street crime or antisocial behaviour, and the darkness didn't bring more criminals out. Meanwhile, another person was arrested in connection with Jim's murder. Police announced that they were questioning a local 27-year-old man and said that they had raided two homes: one in Hunting Gate off Greenstead Road and Collingwood Road. The arrest came after police released CCTV image from the night of Jim's murder. We still have 20 people who we need to speak to and potentially eliminate having released their images from CCTV, said DCI Simon Werrell. The man was soon enough released on bail. By this point in the investigation there was a £5,000 reward for anybody who could provide police with information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. In April, the murder was featured on BBC's Crime Watch. The segment included CCTV images of people seen in the park that police were attempting to track down. After Crime Watch aired, police received several tips and announced that they had managed to identify eight people on CCTV and rolled them out as suspects. Police even received some viable leads after the CCTV images were shared across Twitter and Facebook. Quote If anyone knows anything, no matter how small or trivial they think the information might be, please do get in touch with my investigation team. We still need help from the public to establish what Mr Atfield's movements were between the River Lodge pub shortly after 10pm on Friday, March 28, and when he was found dying from stab wounds in Lower Castle Park, shortly before 6pm on Saturday, March 29, said DCI Simon Werrell. Police made a desperate plea for information about the man and woman on the park bench who they now stated were key witnesses. Finally, on the 9th of May, the couple came forward. They were questioned and released and then shortly thereafter, two more men were questioned and released. In mid-May, detectives released a new CCTV image of a man who was walking by the lake at Castle Park at around 1.30am on the night that Jim was killed. He was wearing a hoodie and carrying a carrier bag. Next, we will hear from Ryan Jennings, a journalist at Colchester Gazette.
6: We had extensively covered the initial murder. We'd run a lot of appeals, including with, with Jim's family, and at the time the coverage was starting to fall away a little bit. So we got a call to say there's a lot of police activity in this particular area along the Sally Brook Trail, just just outside the Greensted Estate. We had been told that every entrance into the Salary Brook Trail had been blocked off by police cars.
2: Three months after Jim's murder, a woman was attacked on the 17th of June. Essex police were alerted by a member of the public after the woman was found bleeding profusely at the Salary Brook Trail off Avon Way, Colchester, just before 10.40am. The Salary Brook Trail was a pathway that ran along the back of the housing estate before opening up to fields. The woman was spotted by Vincent Burgess, who lived in a flat nearby. He had looked out his window and saw her lifeless body. Together with another neighbour, he went to see what had happened. When he approached her body, he noticed she was surrounded in blood. The woman was treated for fatal head injuries and body injuries at the scene by paramedics, but died from her injuries. She had been slashed and stabbed 16 times on her head and back. She had also been stabbed through both eyes. She was identified as Nahid al a 31-year-old student at the local University of Essex. Nahid had come to England from Saudi Arabia just six months earlier to study on the Essex English Language Programme at the International Academy. She was known to be a hard-working student and was due to graduate in August. She had ambitions to undertake a PhD in life sciences and had co-authored a number of academic papers. In the wake of her murder, Essex University launched a fundraising campaign for a scholarship in Nahid's memory. Quote, The scholarship and memory of Nahid will help us to honour a talented member of our community, both now and in the years ahead. Our university is incredibly proud of the strength of our international and diverse community and we hope people will stand with us in remembering and honouring Nahid by making a donation to the scholarship fund, said Vice-Chancellor Professor Anthony Foster. Nahid's
3: family made a statement by DC Jane Morgan. The family had been left devastated by the terrible murder of Nahid. Nahid was a remarkable and gentle person who was loved for her kind and caring nature. Publicly, Nahid was a quiet and dignified lady who chose to pursue her academic studies in order to work towards her PhD. And whilst in England, she made a decision that she would respect her heritage and traditions in the way that she dressed and conducted herself. However... When she was with her family, Nahid was a warm and loving person who enjoyed laughter and the company of her parents, siblings, and extended family. The amount of people that attended Nahid's funeral is a tribute to how much she was cared for and respected. As a family, we have been upset by the media speculation about Nahid's death, in particular, the publishing of a photograph claiming to be Nahid, which is not her. We wish to appeal directly to the person responsible for Nahid's death to come forward and hand themselves in to the police in order to relieve our suffering and let justice take its course. It is vital that anyone with any information about Nahid's death, no matter how small, contacts the police to share that information. We respectfully ask that we are left alone to grieve in private as we continue to work with the police in England and Saudi Arabia to investigate this brutal crime.
2: On the day of Nahid's murder, she had left the home she shared with her brother nearby in Woodrow Way at around 10am before starting to walk on the path where she was ultimately attacked. Police confirmed that a 52-year-old man from Colchester was being questioned in connection with the murder, but he was quickly released and eliminated as a suspect. They announced that there was no evidence to suggest that the murder of Nahid was connected with the murder of Jim. A police cordon was set up on the path known as the Salary Brook Trail, all the way to Buffett Way. Detective Chief Inspector Mark Hall announced to the concerned public that they would be conducting house to house inquiries in the area surrounding the crime scene and was being extensively searched with the assistance of a police helicopter and a sniffer dog. Once again, the locals were on edge and shuddered at the thought of a second killer in their community. Even more disturbing was the fact that this murder had happened in broad daylight, on a busy path where you would expect numerous people to have been walking Whoever the killer was, they were brazen for sure. When Jim was murdered, many locals convinced themselves that they would never be a target because they were safe in their own homes by nightfall. To calm their nerves, police announced that a reassurance press conference was scheduled for later on that day. Quote, I am really scared about what is happening. I was surprised to see all the police until they told me that a woman had been killed, said 19-year-old Charlie Ray of Purcell Close. Hey guys, just a quick little break to let you know about an amazing true crime show that I'm excited about. If you're a fan of Morbidology, then I think Crime Salad will be right up your alley. Hosts Ashley and Ricky bring you a healthy dose of true crime every week, with stories like The Killers of Manitoba and The Murder of Kelly Ann Bates, sparing no gruesome detail. If you like the show, make sure to check out their premium channel on Himalaya, where you can find all episodes ad-free and 24 hours early as well as exclusive content and a members-only community group where you can chat with the hosts. Simply download the Himalaya app, search Crime Salad and enter promo code SALAD for your first month absolutely free. So what are you waiting for? Go and check out Crime Salad. I love the show and I think that you will too.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
2: Next, we will hear from Dr. Kerry Nixon, a forensic psychologist. There would have already been
0: intense fear because a man had been murdered in what is usually a quiet town. But something that the public do in a case like that, it's it's called just world belief. It's that they think, well, it won't happen to me, that was night time, he was drunk, he was in a vulnerable position, I'm okay. So then, when a second murder occurs that happens in the morning, When a young girl is just simply walking to university, that then changes things. That means it could be me. Everybody is potentially a victim, and that would have really heightened fear.
2: One of the first lines of inquiry into Nahid's murder was whether this was a hate crime. When Nahid was killed, she was wearing a dark navy abaya robe and a multicoloured hijab. Detective Superintendent Tracy Hawkins said, quote, we are conscious that the dress of the victim will have identified her as likely being a Muslim, and this is one of the main lines of the investigation. But again, there's no firm evidence at this time that she was targeted because of her religion. The theory that she was targeted because of her religion evoked fear in the Muslim community. A 19-year-old student who didn't want to be named told the Evening Standard that the area was pretty tolerant and they had never had any issues because of their religion in the past. Quote, if it's true people are being picked out by somebody just because they look Muslim, it's very worrying, they said. A British extremist fighting in ISIS even used the murder to encourage revenge attacks against non-Muslims. Abu Rashash Britani tweeted, quote, "I call upon any brother to take up a knife and kill as they did #Colchester." Police urged residents to check their gardens and bins for any discarded weapons or blood-stained clothing. They also asked anybody who was on the trail between 8.30am and 11am to come forward if they saw anything out of the ordinary. They released CCTV footage showing some of Nahid's last known movements. She was spotted walking past the shops on Homwicky Road and was carrying a bag. The following day, police announced that they were now looking for possible links with Nahid's murder and Jim's murder.
6: Many people were looking at the two attacks as looking very similar and ultimately related. So the talk in the town, and of course the talk through the papers, was that there could be a serial killer on the loose.
2: It was difficult to deny that there were striking similarities in both murders. Both appeared to be motiveless crimes and both victims were stabbed to death and there was an element of overkill. However, the victim profile varied substantially, as did the time of murder. While it's said that serial killers often stick to a modus operandi, including victim type, there are some that are an exception to the rule. What we see is the use of extreme violence. There's 102 knife
0: wounds and many of them are what we call knife tip wounds. They're not going to kill the victim. They're purely done to cause pain. In the second murder, what we see is a reduction in the number of knife wounds, but he still keeps the knife-tip wounds. So it's almost like he's honing his technique. But the most striking similarity in these two murders is the stabbing of the eye. In the first murder, we see the victim has been stabbed in the eye, but we don't know at that point was it planned. So it's really chilling that then we see the second murder where the killer actually planned to stab the victim in the eye and we know this because he removed her sunglasses in order to stab her in the eye what we're starting to see here is emerging mo it's almost like the killer wants that to be the
2: feature of his murders on the 20th of june a 19 year old man was arrested shortly after midnight after he attempted to attack a woman who was out jogging alone in colchester He approached the young woman and attempted to grab her. However, she managed to fight him off and run home where she called police. When police arrived at the scene, they found a man who matched the description of the would-be attacker. While he was in police custody, they announced that they were questioning him in relation to the two murder investigations. However, the following day, the man was released without charge. Quote, No further action against him is planned in respect of either the murder or the assault, as he has been eliminated from both inquiries, said a police spokesman. It wouldn't be long until police announced that they were searching for another two suspects. A man had been spotted running out of an alleyway which links to the Sandy Brook Trail where Nahid was found stabbed to death at around the same time as her murder. He was estimated to be between 18 and 25 years old with medium build and dark hair. He was wearing a long-sleeved, plain hooded red top and dark trousers. Another man was spotted running from the same area. He was described as being between 18 and 30 years old, of medium build and with thick dark hair. He was wearing a brown jacket which was very distinctive. Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Warren said that the jacket looked like an Italian designer item that was longer than waist length and had a belt around the middle.
3: I'm keen to identify and speak to a man who was described as being on the Salary Brook trail What's distinctive about this man is the jacket he's described as wearing.
2: Furthermore, experts were now claiming that the murders of Jim and the Heat were linked. According to Detective Warren, a criminal profiler from the National Crime Agency carried out a thorough assessment of all of the evidence in connection with both murders and speculated that they were both committed by the same person. With the spectre of a sadistic serial killer looming over the town of Colchester, police urged the public to remain vigilant and warred against going out alone, day or night. Quote, Our advice to people is that we now have two knife murders in Colchester, in less than three months, where the motive for the attacks remains unknown. Both of these attacks were on lone people, who were in locations where it appears that nobody else was nearby at the time. For that reason, we would remind people to take sensible precautions to stay safe. This includes avoiding any situations in which you could find yourself isolated and alone in a public area, said Detective Chief Superintendent Warren. With the potential of a serial killer, parents especially were on edge and many even kept their children indoors. Quote, I'm terrified I've got my back door locked and my window shut. My 12-year-old isn't allowed out after school. He's not going anywhere until someone has been caught, said Laura Charlton, a local mum of two. In a bid to alleviate the community's fears, police put an additional 100 officers on patrol in the area. Nahid's body was flown to al Juf in Saudi Arabia, where the rest of her family lived. Her funeral prayer was held at Kadim Al-Harmayn Mosque, where hundreds of mourners had gathered to bid their final goodbye. She was laid to rest at Al-Lakwit Cemetery. Back in Colchester, checkpoints were set up around the area where police were asking locals if they had been in the area around the same time as Nahid's murder. Leaflets and posters in English and Arabic were distributed in the area. Police soon announced that one man spotted on CCTV in Castle Park when Jim was murdered was wearing a brown coat similar to the one worn by the man seen running on the Salary Brook trail at around the same time as Nahid's murder. Following the Hayes murder, Essex Council decided to turn the streetlights back on for investigative purposes. However, the following week, the streetlights were turned off once again. According to Oliver Lincoln, the boss of VestGuard, they noticed a spike in stab-proof vests and protective clothing. Despite the extensive and exhaustive investigation into both murders, the cases both gradually went cold. Then in May of 2015, a 16-year-old boy was arrested on the Salary Brook Trail, near where Naheed was attacked. At around 11am, Michelle Sadler called police when she spotted the teenager hiding in the bushes while she was walking her dog. While that alone is suspicious, she noticed that the teenager was wearing a brown coat which looked the same as the one described in the media that the killer was wearing. Quote, He was no more than 15 feet away and staring straight at me. It's a face that will never leave me. A manic look, she said.
3: Obviously I got close enough, so when he looked at me, I looked back at him, I felt really, really sort of scared, panicked. I turned round, went back on where I was, um, and that's when I obviously decided I needed to call the police, but I wasn't 100% certain, because I thought, you know, if he hasn't done anything, do I or don't I?
1: And you could have been just seconds away from... Yeah,
3: yeah, if I'd have gone in five minutes later, which is what I already knew, where he was in that bush, I I know he'd have got me from behind, and I know that, and, um, yeah, that's the most horrific part, you know,
2: When police arrived and asked him what he was doing, the teenager said he was, quote, out for a walk to clear his head. When he was searched, police found a lock knife in his pocket and he was wearing surgical gloves, which he claimed were for poor circulation. He was arrested for the knife, but was subsequently charged with the murder of both Nahid and Jim. He would later be identified as James Fairweather. Fairweather had come from a close-knit family and his parents had provided a loving and caring home. He lived in a semi-detached house in Colchester with his mother Anita, his father James and his sister Gemma. As a young boy, Fairweather had compulsive behaviours. He would always sit in the same place, would always go to bed at the same time and preferred to line up his toy cars instead of play with them. In primary school he was described as a happy and healthy child who was sensitive to the needs of others. In high school, however, Fairweather was a completely different boy. He was excluded by the majority of his peers and fell behind in class. He was bullied over his appearance either getting called Mr Bean or Dumbo. In a bid to fit in, Fairweather took to rebelling against teachers and acting out. Fairweather was particularly close with his father growing up, however over time, Fairweather had become withdrawn, isolated and stopped talking to his parents. At the time of the murders, Fairweather, who was just 15 years old, was studying for his GCSEs at Colchester Academy. The day before his final year 11 assembly, he threatened to carry out a Columbine-style massacre. When he left school in June, he struggled to find a job.
6: I spent a lot of time with James Fairweather's former classmates. Um, one of the things that came up was his descent, I suppose, into being, uh, for want of a better phrase, a bad boy in school. He had told teachers that when he grew up, he wanted to be a murderer. He had told everyone in the school that he was going to bring a in life into school and carry out a massacre. He was fantasising about killing in a school he wanted to kill his head teacher. He wanted people to know that he was capable of
3: killing.
2: Following Fairweather's arrest, nobody could quite believe that he was the killer, especially his victims' families. Julie Finch, Jim's mother, said, quote, How could a little boy do that? How could he have it in him to do something so monstrous? What has happened to him to make him like that? We thought it was going to be a serial killer like Peter Sutcliffe or something. When we found out it was a little schoolboy of 15, the same age as one of my children, it was unbelievable. It was like a sick joke. Finch had been haunted by the thought of her vulnerable son being viciously attacked and then left to bleed to death on the cold park floor. Jim's sister, Jo also couldn't quite comprehend the arrest of Fairweather.
5: I was angry, I was confused, because I was like, how could somebody that age even dream of doing anything like that to another human being?
2: Fairweather certainly didn't look like the archetype of a sadistic serial killer that the media had conjured up. He stood at around 5 feet 5 inches tall and looked like a typical skinny schoolboy.
6: The atmosphere around the town, at the time of the arrest, was still one of disbelief because we all knew at this point how brutal and how violent the murders had been and there was really no understanding this could have been the work of a boy aged 15 or 16.
2: That evening, Fairweather confessed to both murders. Quote, I've been hearing voices which are telling me to murder people, and I've murdered two people, he said. He stated that he found Jim asleep on the ground and, quote, stabbed him in the head, one shot missed on the side, I hit him in the eye. There was a big pool of blood. I thought he was dead. He gurgled. He recollected that he had snuck up behind Nahid. I went behind her and hit her. She stumbled. It was a long knife and obviously went all the way through. I hit her in the eye and killed her instantly. It went through the brain, he said. He also confessed that when he was arrested, he had been out searching for a third victim. He said that he had been out looking for somebody who was on their own, but thankfully he didn't come across any lone passerbys. He was brought to Colchester Magistrates Court to be charged. Wearing a grey tracksuit and glasses, he smiled at his parents. As the murder charges were read out, his parents tried desperately to hold back tears. In February of 2016, Fairweather denied two counts of murder and possessing an offensive weapon – but admitted to alternative counts of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. However, the Crown Prosecution Service refused to accept the plea and announced that they would be pursuing murder charges. Therefore, Fairweather would be facing a double murder trial and it was slated for April of the same year. During Fairweather's trial, the prosecution told the jury that when he was arrested, he had a photograph of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, saved on his phone He had also googled serial killers and killers who had pleaded guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. There was also testimony about how Fairweather had told police during an interview that he heard voices in his head telling him that he, quote, needed to make a sacrifice. In interviews with police on the 27th and 29th of May, Fairweather can be heard stating that the voices had told him, quote, if you don't do it, they are planning to come and get you.
6: Like, because my voices were talking to me. You need to make a sacrifice. So we're gonna come and get you. You need to do it. And I saw him. It was where it was. It laying on the grass. Like, like that. It was like that. Just fast asleep, where he was drunk. Then he goes. He goes. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one. Do it. Do it. So I went up to him. Can I stand up? I yes. Went up to him. I stood over like that. I'm not helping that. I stabbed him first there i have done it a few times. While I was doing that, my voices were laughing and laughing and laughing louder and louder.
2: Prosecutors told the jury that Fairweather had admitted to killing Jim and Naheed shortly after he was arrested. Quote, he described in detail how he had killed them. He said that he did so because of hearing a voice telling him that he needed to make a sacrifice. During the interviews with police, Fairweather spoke about bullying in school and then hearing voices in his head. He described how the voices told them to rob the store first of all as a test before the murders. The court heard how Fairweather confessed, quote, "I want to tell you because it's been weighing heavily on me. I've been hearing voices which are telling me to murder people. And I've murdered two people. I murdered James Atfield, the disabled man by stabbing him 102 times, and I murdered a student Nahim." The taped confession was played out in court during which Fairweather recollected that when he first stabbed Jim, he let out a loud scream before pleading with him to stop.
5: I attended the court every day. and um, It was difficult, but I felt I had to do it for Jim. It was like heartbreaking sitting there listening to all the evidence. We walked out every evening with tears rolling down our faces in disbelief.
2: During the interview, Fairweather confesses to throwing away the murder weapons in the river and hiding his blood-stained clothing in a bin bag inside a rubbish bin. Dr Philip Joseph was called as a prosecution witness and he was of the opinion that Fairweather's claims of hallucinations were completely fabricated and an attempt to deceive those that were assessing him. He highlighted the fact that Fairweather had planned the killings and then concealed the evidence afterwards as evidence of this. He also added that if Fairweather had been experiencing voices as intense as he had claimed, then said it was unlikely that anybody would not have noticed his ailing mental health. Quote, In my opinion, it is inconceivable, but that is an area of dispute. It is a bit like having a severe headache every day, day after day, and being expected to go about your daily life. It is inconceivable that nobody picked it
1: up. Because James Fairweather had admitted to the killings, the prosecution had uh, a relatively easy task of laying out the case, and they had to set out that James Fairweather was capable and was fully aware of what he was doing when he committed those two murders. In contrast, the defense were not there to say that James Fairweather was not responsible for these killings in a practical, physical sense, but actually his mental state at the time meant that he couldn't be held accountable for his actions.
2: However, the defence lawyer, Simon Spence, QC, called on Dr Simon Hall, a forensic psychiatrist who had been speaking with Fairweather over recent months. He said that Fairweather, quote, was describing the most anti-social violent thoughts I have ever come across. According to Dr Hall, Fairweather had spoken about voices telling him to set fire to babies and cut their necks off. He felt disdain for sex workers and discussed how his former head teacher had made him angry. Quote, He was really unable to contain his excitement about harming a head teacher and throwing acid, recalled Dr Hall. From his assessment, Fairweather was suffering from a personality disorder, but said that he could not rule out a psychotic illness.
3: He was a very troubled young man. He was only 15 years of age at the time. He was very suspicious of everybody that he came into contact with. He was convinced that the prison authorities, the uh, warders at the prison were spying on him he he was very difficult to engage with he found it very difficult to answer straightforward questions you couldn't make eye contact with him at all Uh, he'd stare at the table and uh, just look down and the minute i met james it struck me that he may very well be autistic and that only was diagnosed once the psychiatrists who were caring for james during his time on remand started to carry out their tests on him
2: a lot of people by this point were referring to Fairweather as a psychopath, alluding that only a psychopath could kill two innocent people with no emotion. This was refuted by forensic psychiatrist Dr. David Ho, who told the jury, quote, The IQ testing revealed his IQ to be in the low average region. Again, it is unlikely someone could be so devious and psychopathic and yet have an IQ that low. It was also revealed during the trial that Fairweather had been questioned by police after the murder of Naheed, but had been released after claiming that he was at home. The questioning came as police were trying to eliminate 69 people from the inquiries. Fairweather had been called in for questioning because he had a prior record. In January of 2014, Fairweather had repeatedly punched a young boy in Colchester, and then shortly thereafter, he robbed a convenience store at Knife Point. He was arrested after bragging about it to classmates. While he could have been jailed, he only got a 12-month youth referral order, meaning that he was out free to commit murder. As is common with serial killers, Fairweather had returned to the scene where he killed Jim. The court heard a recording from Fairweather where he explained that he had sat on the park bench just feet away from where he had attacked Jim. He said he sat there for around an hour. In his own words, he did this to quote, relive and fuel the fantasy. P.C. Benjamin Savory, one of the first officers on the scene of Jim's murder, described how when he first saw Jim, his injuries were so severe that he initially thought that he had been scalped. He described one incision that ran across the forehead, scoring the line by the scalp. There was a half-circumference laceration around his head, almost as if it was a scalping, he said. Vincent Burgess, the man who had found Nahid, also testified during trial He said that he had initially thought that she was lying down and enjoying the sun, before worrying that she had suffered from a heart attack. He testified that when he went over to her body, he saw that her face had been completely shredded with a sharp object and that she was gurgling. I told her not to worry. We are getting an ambulance to you straight away. You will be all right. He relayed to the court how he knew that Nahid was already dead by the reaction of the paramedic who arrived at the scene. Following the testimony, the jury now had to decide whether Fairweather was truly mentally ill at the time of the murders or had fabricated the voices in his head in a bid to get a more lenient sentence. During closing arguments, Simon Spence QC, who was defending Fairweather, agreed that the evidence and testimony was horrifying and that most people would feel revulsion by his client's actions. He said that following his arrest, Fairweather saw several psychiatrists and was suffering from diminished responsibility. He pointed out that Fairweather had been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. In his closing speech, Mr Spence said that the teenager was quote, a boy caught up in what I want to describe as the perfect storm of autism, increasing isolation and paranoia, leading to the psychosis which led him to kill. The prosecutor, Philip Bennett's QC, closed by repeating the assessment by Dr Philip Joseph, who said that it was highly likely that Fairweather wanted to emulate the acts of the serial killers he seemingly obsessed over. He reiterated that Fairweather's descriptions of the hallucinations were cliched and unrealistic. While summing up the trial, Mr Justice Robin, Spencer QC, revealed some new information that was not presented as evidence. He described how Fairweather had told doctors that he wanted to kill fifteen more people but was caught. He also said that Naheed had brought her murder on herself by walking alone when a killer was on the loose. He also revealed that Fairweather had told police that if he were bailed, he would kill again. The jury deliberated for eight and a half hours before finding Fairweather guilty of both murders. He was sentenced to 27 years in prison. He gave a thumbs up to his mother and father and then mouthed, quote, I don't give a shit. Fairweather later appealed his sentence. His lawyers argued that the judge had failed to give sufficient weight to his age at the time of the murders or the abnormality of his mental function. The appeal judges refuted this and said that the judge had this well in his mind and could not be faulted for the sentence. They subsequently denied his appeal.
5: I don't believe that James Fairweather was hearing in us, isn't I? I believe he was saying that to see get off from manslaughter, yeah. The day Jim died is the day I died. Why has this happened to Jim, you know? What has Jim ever done to deserve something like that? He was just such a lovely guy, and we always called him Gentle Jim because he was just, wouldn't hurt anybody.
2: The 2014 Colchester murders gripped the town. They were a grim reminder that murders can be completely motiveless and senseless. Jim Atfield was a defenceless man keeping to himself and bothering nobody, and Nahid Almania was walking to university on a pleasant summer morning. While most teenagers were trying to find themselves as a person, James Fairweather was trying to find himself as a serial killer. He seemingly modelled himself on the number of killers that he idolised, and even found his own signature by stabbing his victims in the eyes. Bullying can often make people feel powerless and lacking in an ability to make an impact in the world. In killing his innocent victims, Fairweather felt as though he was shaping the world by destroying someone else's place in the world. Well, guys, that is it for this episode of Morbidology. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I'd like to take a second to give a massive thank you to my new Patreon supporters, Katie Durrell, Melodyl Adams, Beba Stolchkovic, Zoe, Jordan DiStefano, and Mark Morris. Morbidology is now up on Himalaya Plus, which is practically the same as Patreon. I'll be doing exclusive Morbidology episodes on both Patreon and Himalaya Plus, So make sure you check that out if you're interested. I'd also like to thank everybody who has taken the time to leave a positive review or rating on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And everybody that has simply listened to an episode, shared an episode, commented on an episode, I really do appreciate all of the support. Also make sure you visit us at Morbidology.com for more information about this episode and to read our true crime articles. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a promo for the amazing true crime podcast, Apple for the Teacher. Until next time, take care of yourselves and have an amazing week.
0: Hello everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools. Yes, schools. You will hear tragic stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance suicide, kidnap and ransom, a school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present the bad apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple.